This is the Mile High Five podcast with Carl Jensen and Doug Cunnington. We have authentic conversations about the journey to Phi, health, happiness, and some very odd tangents. We interview Phi experts, side hustlers, people on their way to Phi, and those who have reached the other side. Join us every week, and if you want the show notes and links and all that other stuff, head over to milehighfi.com. Let's hear it from our sponsors for today's episode, The Doug Show Podcast. That's my podcast where I talk about affiliate marketing and SEO and some other random topics. Actually, we we did a few episodes on uh, Tiger King, so k- kind of random stuff occasionally, but it's mostly affiliate marketing and SEO. So check that out if you're interested in some of the other stuff that I work on. And then Carl has a blog called 1500days.com. And he writes about his journey to financial independence and retiring early and uh, many other things. There's a lot of lifestyle kind of updates and thoughts on there as well. Currently, as you can gather, we don't have any actual paying sponsors other than Carl and I paying to produce the show, but we might, we might in the future, who knows what it might bring. We may do like a donation model or something like that. And we have been playing around with t-shirts. A lot of people have been asking about t-shirts and hoodies and stuff like that. And Carl actually produced our, our t-shirts and I need to circle back with him. I'm not sure, depending on when you listen to this, we may have t-shirts available already. So definitely check it out. We'll put a link in the description and show notes whenever they are available, but be sure you're on the email list, which is the milehighfi.club. There's a link to get to it, but if we have any uh, new offers or t-shirts or any kind of cool things like that, maybe coffee mugs or something, then we'll let you know via the email list. Without further delay, let's go ahead and get to the episode. Welcome to the Mile High Five podcast. My name is Carl Jensen, and I'm here with my co-host, Doug Cunnington. And today we have our very first guest, and I'm very excited because kind of got a, a pretty big person. We have J.L. Collins, who wrote The Simple Path to Wealth. And before we talk about that, Jill, I think I met you way back at a conference. I don't remember when, but I had known about you through the Mr. Money Mustache blog, and you changed the way I thought about investing because I'm kind of embarrassed to admit this, Doug, but I had no idea what the hell a mutual or an index fund was. And then I read Jail's post on Mr. Money Mustache. I'm like, holy crap, I've been doing it wrong this whole time. And since then, you've wrote a book which has sold over 300,000 copies, which is incredible. And I was looking at your Google talk yesterday, and I, I was pretty amazed because Google gets a lot of pretty big guests on there. And I, I sorted by the number of views on these different videos, and I saw you had more views. I'm going to run through a little list here. You had more views. Your video had more views than Tim Ferriss, George R.R. R. Martin, who wrote the Game of Thrones series, Tina Fey, Ray Dalio, Will Smith, and Chris Pratt. So at least among the Google audience, you're bigger and more popular than all, all those people. That's quite impressive. Yeah, so I know you've been on a million different podcasts, JL, but I think we still need to go over the background of an index fund. What is it? Why it's effective? And I'm kind of curious to know, I don't know if I've ever read this on your blog, how you discovered them and how you came to embrace this form of investing. Well, so first of all, it's it's an honor to be here and to be your first guest. 
so thank you for that. And thank you for the awesome introduction. I, I'm tempted to say I don't want to answer any questions. You guys just keep talking about, <laughs> about all these wonderful things, and I'll sit back and enjoy it. I'll show you my JL tattoo a little bit later in the show. It's in a weird place. Yeah. And you know, Carl, you, you mentioned that you came across me in, in, uh, with the guest post I did on Mr. Money Mustache. And that dates you a little bit because that was way back in 2012. So, yeah, you know, you've, and I don't know when we met, I don't remember when we met each other personally, but, but uh, evidently there's been the connection for almost a decade. So that's kind of cool. Um, so index funds, uh, let me start by answering how I came across them. I, I started investing in uh, 1975, which ironically enough was, the year that Jack Bogle at Vanguard uh, came out with the very first index fund. But I didn't know that at the time. And, and even if I had known that, I would not have been nearly astute enough to embrace it. And I know that I wouldn't have been astute enough to embrace it because when I did hear about them 10 years later, around 1985, I wasn't astute enough to embrace it then, even after having been an investor for a decade at that point. In fact, it took me another 10 or 15 years before I, I embraced index funds and, and have never looked back from there. A uh, little side note, by the way, I reached financial independence in 1989, and I was still a stock picker, and by extension, I would also uh, uh, invest in some actively managed uh, funds that were, of course, run by people who are stock pickers. So, when I say that indexing is the superior way to invest, it's not that picking stocks or picking actively managed funds doesn't work. It does work. I mean, that's what got me to financial independence. What it, all it means is that it, it doesn't work as effectively. It's much more time-consuming and expensive. So I would have gotten there sooner with a bigger number had I embraced indexing earlier. But I think that's one of the things that makes it hard for people to embrace indexing if they've been a stock picker or, or investing in actively managed funds because they've probably been getting reasonably good, good results, at least if they've been astute in the way they've done it. So with all that background, what's an index fund? Well, let's start with what's an actively managed fund. So an actively managed fund is run by professionals who look at all the stocks that are available and they try to avoid the ones that they are think are going to do poorly and choose the ones that they think are going to do better. And that seems like a pretty reasonable thing to do. And in some ways, it seems like a pretty simple thing to do because, you know, the, they're obvious dogs and they're obviously companies that, that are on the rise. The problem is that research now tells us pretty categorically that that's an extraordinarily difficult thing to do. Uh, it turns out that today's dogs are sometimes tomorrow's exciting turnaround stories. And today's high flyers, for those people who were around 10 years ago, like Enron, suddenly implode and, and leave everybody in tears and ashes. So an index fund says, you know, that's so hard to do and it's so expensive to do that we're not going to do it at all. And that was Jack Bogle's brilliance. He said, I'm just going to buy all of the stocks. I'm going to buy the entire basket. His first index fund was based on the S&P 500, which are the 500 largest uh, companies in the United States. He just said, I'm not going to try to predict which one of those are going to outperform. I'm going to buy them all. 
and that's going to be cheaper. I'll have lower fees. And over time, the ones that succeed will succeed by multiples. They can go up 100, 200, 300, 10,000%. The ones that fail will drift off and go ultimately maybe to zero. They'll lose 100%, which sounds awful. But when you have a, a, a game that stacks so that your winners can go up two, three, five, ten thousand percent, and the worst your losers can do is go down a hundred and they'll probably fall off the index before they even get there. Well, that's a winning formula. And so I don't have to worry about which stocks are going to do well or not. If they do well, I will own them. If they don't do well, they'll drift away from my portfolio. So taking Tesla, which I know Carl is is a stock that's done very well for you, uh, it's done work very well for anybody, I guess, who's invested in it. I own Tesla. I own it through uh, BTSAX, which is the total stock market index fund, a little step beyond the S&P 500. So if Tesla continues to do well, uh, I'll continue to benefit from that. Not as much as you will, because it's a bigger part of your portfolio, but I'll continue to do well. If, on the other hand, as other automotive companies come online with their electric vehicles, the world gets tougher for Tesla and they begin to falter, won't matter because I'll benefit from owning those other companies. So it's a win-win. So that's basically what an index fund is. It just buys everything. So in owning a total stock market index fund like VTSAX, I own virtually every publicly traded company in the United States. Last time I checked, that's about 3,600 companies. So also extraordinarily diversified. Right? Some people say, well, if you only own this one fund, that's too narrow. You need more diversification. Well, 3,600 companies in my book is pretty widely diversified. Very good. So I'd like to ask you one follow-up, and this is something I've thought about frequently and I look at the pace of disruption, and especially tech. I have a bias towards tech since I was in computers, but it seems like the pace of disruption is is quickening. You think of 2006, who are the dominant phone phone makers? It was BlackBerry and Nokia, and now I don't think – I think BlackBerry might still be around. I know Nokia was offered by Microsoft, and Apple came along, this computer company, and demolished them all. Uh, you talked about Microsoft and I wouldn't say they were left for dead a while ago, but they were kind of dismissed by a lot of people, including myself. And now I think they're a $2 trillion company. They're one of the biggest companies. So thinking about this and the faster pace of disruption, I think it, it makes a, even, an even stronger case for index funds if you think that's going to continue. And, and I think it will. Like you see the changes from 1400 to 1500 and then you see the changes from from 1950 to 2020. And there's been a lot more changes in the past 70 years than probably any 100-year uh, period in history or even 1,000-year period. So, yeah, that, that's a great point, Carl. And, and back in the late 1960s, early 70s, something like that, um, there was a concept that became popular for a while. It was called the Nifty 50. And this is before index funds ex- uh, came into existence and people were, by definition, had to pick individual stocks. And the concept behind the Nifty 50 was these were the 50 top-performing, bluest of the blue-chip companies out there. And if you bought these 50 companies, 
You could take your stock certificates, which people actually had in those days, you could tuck them in your bank's safe deposit box, and you could forget about it. You were done. You had, had bought everything that you would ever need to buy because these were the dominant companies. And they were companies like General Motors and uh, Polaroid and Xerox and, you know, companies that are marginal to these days if, uh, if they're still around. And the problem with the Nifty 50 is it didn't have what I call self-cleansing, which is a key part of the index. So the index is always evolving and always changing. The laggards fall off and the new blood with that pace of change that you were talking about come up. So if Microsoft falters for a little while as an example and then recovers, it's still in the index and I benefit from that. If it turns out to be uh, BlackBerry, which I think has sort of faltered and disappeared, I'm not entirely sure, then it just drifts away. But it's always self-cleansing. The Nifty 50 didn't have that because you bought them and there was no mechanism by which they fell off or you acquired new blood. And that's a, that's a hugely important difference. So it was a very failed strategy. Uh, but I guess it kind of predicted the rise of index funds, maybe. When you shifted over to index funds, because you mentioned they were around for 10 years and it took you a little while to warm up to them, was there a specific event or thing that made you go to index funds? You know, there wasn't. Uh, it was more an accumulation of, of time and looking at it. I, they were first brought to my attention by a, a friend of mine who was a financial analyst uh, in 1985. And I just wasn't ready to accept them. It is kind of counterintuitive when you first think about it, especially if you've been a stock picker like me, you know, to say, well, uh, you know, you're just going to buy everything and that'll be better. And because you sit back and you think, well, gee, if I just avoid the obvious bad ones, I'll do better. Or if I just avoid, or if I just focus on the obvious good ones, I'll do better. And that seems logical, and it is, but the research over time has accumulated to indicate that that's actually extraordinarily difficult. It's very rare that anybody can do that. It's one of the reasons that Warren Buffett is so lionized is because over decades he's actually been able to do it. Well, if there were thousands of people doing the same thing, then Warren Buffett would be one of a crowd. So that... The fact that he's so famous is an indication of how rare the ability to do that is. But for me, at least, it was very hard to accept. And But I kept having conversations with people. It took me, as I say, about from the moment I was aware of them in 85 until I uh, embraced them was probably 10, 15 years, probably closer to 15 years. But in that time period, there was no one epiphany. It was just the accumulating weight of the evidence. And frankly, more and more research was being done on, on how indexing was outperforming uh, actively managed funds. So eventually I, I embraced them. But in, in all candor, I think I still own some individual stocks. I'm trying to think of the last one I own, probably as late as 2012, 2013, something like that. So, I mean, I definitely had the stock picking disease, like like, like my friend Carl there. <laughs> I do have have the disease. Although this morning, 
I bought 100,000 in VTI, which is the ETF version of VTSAX. So wow. I'm slowly coming around. And VTSAX would have been my biggest holding right now, but Tesla had a good day yesterday. So, but I'm buying more index funds, less Tesla. But one thing, one, well, I have, what, have to, you, I have, before we go on, Carl, I have to pay you a compliment because uh, from the little I know about your investing and the, and the stocks you've picked, you've really done extraordinarily well. I mean, much better than the average bear. I think you've done much better than I did back in the day. Uh, without question. And so it's very impressive to me that in spite of that performance, you are so open-minded to looking at index funds and, and the logic behind them and, and that you're still embracing it. So you've, you, you, you're, you're ahead of the curve, uh, at least that I was on. So my, my hat's off to you. JL, I appreciate you saying that. And I'm going to make the counterpoint and tell you why I think even though I have done better, I bought Google at IPO, I bought Tesla in 2012. I'm going to tell you why I don't think my strategy is good. And then I have one short little follow-up for you both, actually. So I think a successful investor can't be measured in my time frame. I've been investing for, I've bought, held most of my stocks for less than 20 years. Uh, to be successful, you're going to live a lot longer than 20 years your adult life is going to be a lot longer than that. So your time frame is going to be much longer. A lot of my holdings are in tech. Are any of these companies I hold going to be relevant? 10 or forget 20 years from now, but even 10, like I said, disruption happens so fast that the Google of today is the Nortel of tomorrow. So I wouldn't, I'm slowly moving all my, you know, all my holdings over to index funds because I don't trust the long-term viability of my portfolio. But the one follow-up question, you hit on something, and the number one argument I hear against index funds, I see this on Facebook groups, is people will say, well, why can't I just figure out what the best performing companies are and, and buy those? That way I don't have to hold the losers. Because if you look at index funds, the interesting thing is very few companies make it work. Um, most of them are losers. So you're buying an index fund for, I think it's less than 10% of companies that are responsible for all your returns. But that's okay because those companies outperform by so much. So anyway, whenever someone comes at, with, comes at me with this argument, the question I always ask to them is, do you know what the best performing stock of all time is? And no one has ever gotten it right. And I'm curious, Doug, do you know what the best performing stock? Can you guess like what would be your top oh, three gosh. guesses? I... I would just guess something like G. Yeah. No, no good reason other than I know they've been around for a little while. Sure. So, what about you, JL? And I guess Philip Morris. That's it. Have you read the article, or do you just know that? No, I, I haven't read the article, but I I do know a little bit about Philip Morris, and you know, <laughs> there is an advantage to having a low cross product that is highly addictive. Yeah, I, I think it's like a 70,000% return if you would have bought it yeah. when JFK was was president, which is amazing, but most people don't guess that. They usually guess some kind of tech company. So it's these unknown unknowns, and that's why you should go with index funds. I think, you know, the big the big picture is you have to, one needs to let go of their ego and realize that they can't pick it. Like you can't do it, even though you can have isolated successful runs of under 20 years or even longer, but it's really hard to do consistently. Luckily I know I'm just a, 
uh, average to below average person in general. So I know index funds are going to be a much better choice for me. So, you know, that's, that's an incredibly, letting go of an ego is an incredibly important part. That's probably the reason I was slower to adapt than, than Carl has been as my ego gets in the way. And I just put up a new post on the blog, which I don't put up new posts very often. And one of the things that I, I tried to address in that post is uh, the current, what I call FOMO investments, fear of missing out investments like GameStop, as an example. And one of the things with GameStop, I think, is that it's going to wind up, most people invested are going to wind up in tears. But the fact will remain that some people will have been made millionaires by their investment in GameStop. And so it's not unreasonable for people to say, well, yes, even if most people lose money, the potential in something like that is for me to suddenly become a millionaire. And so why not take the chance? And part of my answer is, well, twofold. One is the odds are against you that you will be one of those. But even more important, even if you are one of the lucky few, you probably won't recognize that you're one of the lucky few. You will attribute it because of ego that we all have to your superior skill in playing this game. And that means in all likelihood, you're probably going to pay the game even more aggressively going forward. And so you're probably going to give all that money back and then some. A uh, post I wrote just before the last one, which was a couple months ago in February, was about one of my big investment mistakes. And I lost 50 grand in it in, in uh, the early 1990s. I think it was the early 1990s, late, actually late 80s, early 90s, something like that. And sometimes I think as painful as it was to learn lose the 50 grand, had that stock worked out in the magnificent way that it had the potential to work out, I probably would have my ego would have run away with my, my skill and, and I would have lost much bigger amounts of money playing the game further. This is the reason, and I talk about this in the post, this is the reason that casinos do so well. You know, they actually pay out in winnings most of the money that comes in through bets. So they make huge profit margins with just a small sliver of the take, if you will, and the other thing they know that's a little more insidious is even those people who do win, who walk out, are very likely to come back and very likely to give it back and then some over time. So there you go. You're right. Ego is one of the biggest uh, risks that any investor has. Okay. I'd like to talk a little bit about Morgan Housel that we probably all knew who he is. He was an uh, author for the Wall Street Journal. He just wrote The Psychology of Money, which is an excellent, excellent book. And he's a big, huge believer in index funds, but he alluded to something. It was just kind of in passing, and I don't think he put any stock in this, but he said eventually something will probably come along to supplant index funds, and index funds won't be a, a thing anymore. I've thought about that. I think I read this a couple of years ago. And I, I don't have any clue of what could possibly be better than index funds. Like I said, I think the case for them is actually growing stronger. Have you thought about this, JL? And if so, what do you what do you think? You know, I, I have thought about it. I, by the way, I've not read Housel's book, but I do have it uh, on order. 
and I've heard that it's it's a great read, so I'm very much looking forward to it. Um, so I hadn't heard this idea, but I have thought about it when I was writing my book and I read my blog and and now, as you were kind enough to mention, you know my my book has sold over three hundred thousand copies. It sells better today than it did when it first came out. And I look at the kinds of books that on Amazon that are up in the same kind of rankings. And you see things like Benjamin Graham's uh, The Intelligent Investor, which has been around 70, 80 years, something like that. And, uh, you know, I wonder, have I, have I written something that will stand the test of time? And it begins to look like I have, unless there is something that comes along that is better than index funds. Because, of course, my book is all about uh, index funds. And so I've thought about that a lot. And I can't conceive of what that would be because index investing is, in my mind, so well-conceived. I mean, Jack Bogle's brilliance in this concept uh, is just so profound and so well-conceived and uh, that I can't imagine what could possibly be better. But on the other hand, that doesn't mean just because I can't imagine it doesn't mean that there isn't something. And so there's always that possibility. Um, but, you know, in my mind, it's kind of like, well, maybe the, the, somebody will come up with a better theory for all the diversity of life on the planet than Darwin. But at this point, it's kind of hard to see that happening. There's just so much support for the theory of evolution that that, you know, it's hard to imagine that there's some there's a better way to explain it. Uh, or, you know, somebody will come up with a, a better concept than gravity for the reason that <laughs> apples fall out of trees. I mean, yeah, maybe, but, uh, you know, it, it'll it'll certainly uh, widen my eyes in amazement if any of those three three ideas get replaced. Yeah. So you mentioned Jack Bogle, and you got a letter from Jack Bogle before he passed, apparently. And I forgive me, you'll remind me of what his friend's name is, but I think the story was his friend had passed your book on to Jack Bogle, and then Jack Bogle sent you a letter like, like holy shit, what, what was that like? I mean, talk, talk about validation, the ultimate validation. Yeah, so actually it was an email rather than a letter. I, you know, if it was a letter, I'd have it up and framed, I guess, but... And you're putting me on the spot because embarrassingly, and this is my memory, and, and the gentleman deserves better, I'm drawing a blank on on, on the guy uh, that you're referring to. He's, he's one of the, I don't know if he started the Bogleheads uh, group or if he's one of the founding members of it. He's written a couple books about index investing, and he's a, He's, uh, uh, I think he's in his 90s now. He was a close friend of uh, Bogle's. And on the Boglehead forums, uh, this guy wrote a glowing review of my book. I mean, just, I, I, was, I was deeply flattered, and, and especially coming from a, from a guy of his stature. Taylor Larimore, as his name, finally came to me. And Mr. Larimore wrote this just wonderful review of my book that was very, very flattering. And I'm not on the Bogleheads forum, but he was kind enough to send me an email with a link to what he'd written. 
because uh, obviously he, he knew it was something that I, I'd want to see. And that was the first contact I had with him. And so we exchanged, we exchanged some very uh, pleasant emails back and forth, obviously, after that. And at one point, I sort of casually said, you know, I've often wondered if Jack Bogle has ever come across my work on the blog or or my book, and if he did, what he thought about it. And Taylor said, well, I said, I don't know. And that was kind of the end of that. And evidently, he reached out to Bogle. And I don't know if, if Bogle had already come across my stuff or if Laramore put it in front of him. But, but uh, regardless, uh, I was in Ecuador. Uh, we were in a little coastal village, and uh, we were checking out of the hotel, preparing to go uh, over by Quito for one of our shtakwas. And uh, my wife was packing her final suitcase, and I thought, oh, before I leave Wi-Fi, I'll, I'll just check my emails one last time. And, and uh, so I did, and sure enough, there was a new email. I thought, oh, let's see what this is all about. And it was from Jack Bogle. And uh, I actually wrote a post of, about this on the blog, and I don't reproduce the email because it was kind of personal, but it was it was very complimentary. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, when, when you're getting praise from somebody of that caliber or of Larimer's caliber, for that matter, is is uh, an amazing feeling. So, yeah, it's memory I cherish. Very cool. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. You, well, you sound very successful just in general. And as I listened to your book and uh, read your blog and sort of caught up on your biography, it sounds like uh, you walk on water, everything's fantastic. Mm-hmm. You you have mentioned a couple mistakes that I you've made. I have a beach house if I couldn't walk on water. <laughs> point. You mentioned the 87 crash and you tried to time the market and didn't get back in in time. People can check out your book for uh, further details on that. But I'm curious if you could share any other mistakes or failures just to let people know that you are human as well. And and you mentioned that 50 K that you lost just a few moments ago. Um, Any other mistakes that maybe you could share with us? Well, so I, I, if you want me to, I should probably, for the benefit of people who haven't read my book or the blog, maybe I should talk about the 87 one, but I, I think in broad terms, there are three that come to mind. Uh, the $50,000 one, which if anybody cares about, uh, it's a recent post on my blog and you can go read about it in detail. And that's the least interesting one in some ways, the 87 one I'll talk about in a moment. Cause I think that has some important lessons for people here. But the biggest one uh, in my mind is that it took me so long to embrace indexing. I mean, I, you know, I sometimes I think back that, you know, I started investing, as I said, 1975. (laughs) Ironically enough, the very year that Bogle put out the first index fund. And I think, wow, what, how amazing would it have been if I'd been aware of that and had been astute enough to embrace it and how much easier my investing life would have been and how much more profitable. And, and then I think, well, of course that's not possible because I just didn't know. And so you can't act on what you did, what you don't know. But 1985, it was brought to my attention. And I sometimes think, my goodness, how much, 
further ahead would my investments be? How much easier would the path have been? How much less expensive would the path have been? If when I first heard about it in 85, I'd embraced it. But as we talked about, I wasn't astute enough and maybe my ego was too big. And so it took a long time. So that's my biggest mistake. Uh, the 1987 one, uh, which I think is maybe the one that has the most valuable lesson for anybody listening, particularly with with the concern of markets being high now, is uh, a lesson about how markets, you know, the market is volatile, and that's a natural part of the process. And if you're going to invest in stocks, particularly if you're going to follow my investment strategy, the simple path, you're going to have to come to terms with the fact that there's no way of predicting when market crashes are going to happen. So you're simply going to have to endure them, and that's the price you pay for uh, for the outsized returns that they'll deliver to you over the decades. It's much the same as living in Colorado. Uh, you know, it's a wonderful place to live, but you know, you have to expect you're going to get blizzards on occasion. And might not be pleasant, uh, might even be dangerous at times, but you should never be surprised by getting a blizzard if you're living in Colorado or a hurricane if you're living in Florida. Just like you should never be surprised that the market periodically tanks. It's a natural part of the process. It's the price you have to pay. So 1987, um, it was in the fall, I forget the exact day, sometime I think in September or October, uh, there was Black Monday. It's fairly famous because it remains the single biggest daily drop uh, in stock market history, at least on a percentage basis. Went down 22, 23% in a day. It was breathtaking. Uh, these are the days, of course, not only before the internet, but even before the wide use of personal computers. And they were also the days when, if you were investing in stocks, as I was, and again, remember, I'm an individual stock picker in those days, you had a broker. And so I was working. I was, you know, at my job doing my my work. I wasn't listening to the news or the radio. And for some reason, probably just as a social call, because Wayne, my broker, was also a buddy of mine, at the end of my work day, I, thought, oh, I think I'll give Wayne a call and see what's going on. So I call this guy and say, hey, Wayne, how you doing? And there's this long pause. And he says, you're kidding, right? And I could tell from his voice that something horrible had happened. And I said, no, why? He said, you don't know? And I said, no what? And then he began to tell me about the worst day of his life. Because, of course, he'd been dealing with panicked calls from all of his clients, I guess, except me. And... Uh, so this was a major crash. Now, at the time, I knew what intellectually what I was supposed to do, which was nothing, to ride it out. So I knew the right thing to do. And for a couple of months, uh, I did the right thing. And after that crash, the market ground slowly further down. You know, nothing is dramatic. But it kept grinding slowly further down. And it kept feeling more and more painful and more and more scary. And finally, I want to say, probably in December, I, I lost my nerve and I sold. And if I didn't sell at the exact bottom, it, it, the difference wouldn't have made. And there's, you know, it would have been, been fractions in terms of the difference. 
And of course, once I sold, the market, as it always does, began to recover. And it began to slowly work its way back up. And of course, I was on the sidelines. And I stayed on the sidelines because, of course, I was expecting that it would continue to grind. This was a blip and it would continue to go down lower. And, of course, that's always possible, but didn't happen in this case. And by the time I got back in, I was paying higher prices than before Black Monday had happened. And it was a very expensive, very painful, but very powerful lesson. And... Uh, I don't, again, probably because of my ego, I don't think that I could have learned in my gut what I knew in my head without having to go through it. And there was a woman on my blog who just posted a comment uh, yesterday, I think it was, that she's a new investor and she may, even though she'd been reading my stuff, saying stay the course, when the market took its, its pretty scary drop uh, last spring, she panicked and sold just like I did on, on Black Monday. And she was making a comment to say that she'd learned her lesson the hard way too. So, uh, uh, and I said, you're not alone. But yeah, I hope my writing saves people from making that expensive mistake and they can read about it and know what the right thing to do is without having to learn it the hard emotional way. It's it's very difficult. My version of your story was the Great Recession in 2007. I, I did not pull my money out, but I stopped contributing to my 401k, so I probably didn't. There was probably 50, I think it was three or four years, and 401k limits were like 13,000 back then. So that mistake has probably cost me a couple hundred thousand now. It'll be a multi-million dollar mistake by the time I'm dead if I live to be 90. So it's hard to learn these lessons if you don't go through them. Now, I'm the opposite. The uh, I put money in when the last March about a year ago, or last April about a year ago. But yeah, it's hard to it's hard to know what to do if you haven't been through it. I, I wish I was smarter than that. But right there, you have it. And I have a question. Even though <laughs> I know what I should do, just like what you're saying. So I have some money that I need to put into the market. So I moved it from an international index fund. I wish I would have just kept it simple with VTSAX. Anyway, I've pulled that money out and I'm waiting for a little downturn. Now, I think, <laughs> of course, I know the answer. I should throw it in now. Like, d don't worry about dollar cost averaging. I'm actually okay with that to put in the lump sum. But right. I'm just waiting for a little dip. It, what, what could you tell me? What, what mistake am I making here? Well, you know, it's it's very, very, very hard emotionally, and uh, especially because in an environment like now, when the market has done very well, and I talk about this in this most recent post I put up, by the way, the market's done very well. By all metrics, it's not cheap. It's fairly expensive. There is a case to be made that that you know it's on the verge of taking a major plunge. The case being that, you know, interest rates are incredibly low. Inflation is incredibly low. The government is spending money like there's no tomorrow. And that has a very high likelihood of triggering inflation, which will trigger interest rates, which will, you know, 
cause the market to decline. Of course, there's an argument on the bullish side. I mean, Jerome Powell was interviewed on 60 Minutes, I think, uh, on Sunday saying that, you know, we're coming out of out of COVID uh, incredibly strong. He was calling for a 6% increase in, in GDP this year, which if, may not sound like much, but in, in GDP numbers, that's huge. I mean that's 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 the kind of increase you only typically see in a in a um, third world country uh, rapidly developing. Uh, so you know maybe all that economic activity catches up to the stock price. The point is there's no possible way to know. What we do know is the stock market goes up seventy five percent of the time and goes down twenty five percent of the time. So at any given moment, your odds are 75-25 that you're better off investing now. But, of course, that doesn't mean that it's 100%. So the moment you invest, you know, is the big fear, and it's a reasonable fear, is the next day is going to be the day that the market decides to take one of its periodic plunges. The only thing I can say to that is that if you are invested, right, once you're invested and, and you are always at that risk, so it's not just the risk of putting your money in today, but once you have your money in, you will always and forever be at that risk of the next day will be when it drops 50%. And as I said, just like hurricanes and blizzards, that's a natural part of the process. So that will happen to you one day, just like it happened in 07, 08, just like it happened in 87. So it's a hard decision to make, and, and I hesitate telling you this because, of course, that means tomorrow the market's going to crash. But the logical thing to do is to invest the moment you're able to invest. And the flaw of dollar-cost averaging, and I have to separate two kinds, dollar-cost averaging where you are putting money in from your earned income every month First of all, you don't have any option other than that because you can't invest money until you get it. That kind of dollar cost averaging I'm very much in favor of, and that happens to help smooth the ride. So that's what my daughter does. For instance, she's working, and she's saving a large percentage of her income, and it goes in, come hell or high water, every month. So if the market plunges tomorrow, the next time she invests, she'll just get more shares but the kind of dollar cost investing we're talking about with you is when you have a lump sum. And the problem is if you dollar cost invest that lump sum over time with the idea of I'm going to avoid this scary possibility of the market dropping the moment I invest my money, well, that only works if, in fact, the market drops. And if the market stays flat, then you have been better off investing it all at once. And, of course, if the market rises, you'll even be worse off by dollar cost investing. But the worst thing is that let's say you've got $120,000. You say, I'm going to put 10,000 a month in until it's fully invested. And you do that. And the day after you make that last investment, that's the day it plunges 50%. So you really haven't protected yourself from that risk because you can't, because that risk, as I said earlier, is always there once you're invested. And at some point, it will bite you. You just have to learn to hold on and live through it. And the last thing I'll leave you with is if you're investing, you should be thinking in terms of decades. 
right? I'm never going to sell my holding in BTSAX. Never. I mean, I might sell a little bit of it to pull 4% to live on as a retired guy. But other than that, I'm never going to sell it. I don't have to. It's self-cleansing as we talked about ever. You know, so from that point of view, then it really doesn't matter if you buy when the market is just about to drop or not. Uh, obviously, if we had a crystal ball, you'd only buy on, on the low points, but nobody has that. And truth be told, it's a little uh, personal competition with my wife. So just trying to beat her investments. She doesn't know that. She doesn't know that we're playing against each other, but I am. Wow. <laughs> Who is winning so far, Doug? Well, it's, it's complicated. It's just very complicated. <laughs> She's winning. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing complicated about that. She's winning. Yep. <laughs> okay. Let's talk about the simple path to wealth a little bit. This is your book, and I, I knew it was successful, but but Mindy, my wife, talked to you a, a month or so ago, and she's like, yeah, JL told me it sold over 300,000 copies. And since then, I read that it was recently translated into Japanese. Is that correct? Well, yeah. I mean, Japanese a couple of years ago, okay. we just... Yeah, we just got a report from our Japanese publisher. It sold 40,000 copies last year in Japan, but it's been published in nine languages, 10 if you include English. It's either been published or, or we have a deal to to publish. And it's, let's see if I can tick them off. But, uh, Japanese, as you mentioned, Korean uh, was published in Chinese, both in China and in Taiwan, in Thailand, in... Vietnam, we just did a deal in Vietnam. I think that's all of Asia. And then in Russia, Poland, Germany. So that's, I, did I get to nine? <laughs> I, I wasn't keeping count. I'm but anyway, so some of those deals are recent. When you do these deals, I've learned that part of the deal is the publisher has a window uh, in which they can, from the moment you sign the deal, they have a window and it's typically 18 months. So they don't actually have to publish the book right away. So it could be, uh, you know, it could be 18 months before they publish it. But, uh, but it's been, so we, I have to be careful to say we have deals in all those languages. The books themselves might not actually be published yet in those languages. For instance, the deal in Vietnam, we just, we just signed. Have you heard from readers in Japan or Russia? Have people sent you emails or? <laughs> I, I, I have heard from, and and I, because Japan was one of the earliest uh, deals we did, I have heard from some readers in Japan. Uh, and I think I've heard from a couple in Korea, too. That was another one of our early deals. Okay. J yeah. J Japan is kind of interesting to me because I know they're, based on my very, very shallow knowledge, I think they're very conservative. And they, I, you look at what's happened with their stock market, I I don't think they're as big of fans of the stock market as the typical American would be. So 40,000 copies and, and that environment sounds pretty great. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, what's interesting to me is when these first deals, I have an agent now who handles these deals and, and I was a little reluctant initially, particularly in markets like Korea and Japan where my, and Taiwan, or my impression is English is very widely spoken. And there was a site, and I, and I sell English language copies in all those countries through Amazon because uh, I self-published the initial book through Amazon. So my, 
there was a little bit of my my reaction was, well, you know, the kinds of people who are going to read a book like mine in Japan, to your point about feeling the stock market, are probably going to be people who read English, who speak English. Um, but, you know, obviously, and that's true to a certain extent, but obviously there were 40,000 people in Japan who said, I like the fact I can read it in, in Japanese. So, Okay. Did you think it would be this successful? I mean, 300,000 copies is a lot of copies for any book, much less a, a niche topic like this. You're not writing Stephen King fiction. I mean, 300,000 is amazingly successful. And, and I'm curious, so did you expect that success? And what made you write the book in the first place? I remember the process. I think it took you a couple of years. And in my in my stupid mind, I thought, oh, it's as easy as going to take all his knowledge and formulate, formulate it into a book. And in my mind, I think I actually had this thought. It'll take you a, a month or two. And I realized how ridiculous of a thought that was now. I think it took you a, a couple of years to put out the book. Well, that was exactly the thought I had, Carl. <laughs> so I, I, was, I was every bit as silly as you. I thought, you know, I've, I've already written all this material in one form or another in the blog. So all I have to do is kind of curate it from there. And, and magically, the book will appear. It took me three years. Uh, and it was, you know, it's, it's kind of like renovating an old house. You know, a lot of people who, who like gut renovate an old house will have said to me anyway that, you know, I, I should have bulldozed it and just built from, from scratch. It would have been faster and easier, but it's, it's a very long, laborious, thankless, solitary process. And you have no idea if there'll be a payoff, you'll have no idea if anybody will care. And the truth is that most books, uh, not only self-published books, but most published books, you know, sell less than a thousand copies. So the vast majority of people writing a book are never going to see any tangible or very, very little in the way of, of tangible reward for having done that work. And it's extraordinarily hard. And uh, there were frequent times when I stepped away from it. I just said, life's too short, and, you know, nobody is going to care about this. And, you know, I knew I had some blog readers who would care. Um, so I had no concept. I, I, th I thought it would be, it would sell a few thousand copies because I knew I had fans on the blog. And so I thought, well, you know, I... Uh, you know, it'll sell five or 10,000 copies maybe. And that's vastly better than most self-published books. So that kind of kept me going. But even then I wasn't positive of that. So I, I really had, I had no concept that it would sell the way it has or that it would enjoy the status that it's, that it's enjoyed. And, and, uh, and I certainly, the most surprising thing of all to me is, uh, that it would not only still be selling because uh, I published it in 2016, not only it would still be selling uh, now, five years later, but better than ever. I mean, every year it's sold, it is sold better than the year before. And that's even more amazing to me. And obviously I'm gratified and, and uh, you know, it's wonderful to hear all the messages from readers who, and, uh, you know, like you guys were saying at the beginning, who, who've gotten great benefit from it. But, yeah, I mean, nobody's more surprised about this than I. <laughs> well, 
Were there any specific challenges with self-publishing or assumptions that turned out to be incorrect? You know, self-publishing actually turned out really well for me. And one of the the smart things I did uh, is I turned to my blog readers for help. I actually published a blog post back in the day when I did help want it. And I, I found, I don't know if you've ever seen it, there's an old there's an old ad, an actual ad from the Pony Express back in the day when, you know, they they were trying to recruit riders for the Pony Express and you know, who were basically children, by the way. So they wanted, you know, under 15 years old, skinny, orphans preferred because they <laughs> that a lot of these guys were going to get killed. It was a very dangerous job. So anyway, I reproduced that. And that's how I found, you know, my the uh, the woman who designed the interior of the book, the uh, the woman who de- designed the cover, the woman who did the well, the woman who did the illustration. I was an old friend of mine. Uh, the, my proofreaders, you know, they all all came from from the blog, and uh, so they knew my work, they liked my work, they liked being part of the project, they had expertise in their field, and. And it went very, very smoothly. Any pros and cons for self-publishing? Obviously, it turned out really well for you. But if anyone is thinking, "Hey, I want to give it a shot," yeah, I would. I, I'd highly encourage. Again, like you say, it turned out extraordinarily well for me, and so I have to be a little careful that you know. But you know, part of that, as they say, it turned out well for me because I had knowledgeable people who were enthusiastic about working on it through the blog. And I suspect not everybody who self-publishes has, has that advantage, but yeah. And I remember at the time uh, when the manuscript was done and I was thinking about how I was going to publish it, there were a couple of traditional publishers that were interested. And uh, I remember talking to them because that did seem the easier way to go. Uh, even though you get a much smaller cut of the revenue if you if you publish to a traditional publisher, and and I'm having conversations with these folks, and I'm saying, so what is what's the advantage to why should I why should I go with you? What's the advantage to to using you? And they'd say things like, well, you know, there's the prestige if we publish your book. And I thought, well, you know, there was a time when self publishing was was kind of, I guess, looked down on. and But by 19, by 2016, those days were long gone. And I don't know what the last book you read was, uh, but I can't tell you who published the last book I read or even the books I'm currently reading. You know, and I mean, nobody cares who publishes it. Now, if they were have to made a major commitment to marketing, uh, you know, which, and to be able to market in a way that I, wouldn't have been able to, I, you know, I would have been interested in that, but you know, they don't typically do that with first time authors. So nobody was, nobody was offering that to me. They were just like, Oh yeah, you know, we'll, we'll publish it. You'll get the prestige of us publishing it and we'll get most of the money. Right. (laughs) So, and I think one thing that you didn't mention is you obviously put in multiple years building an audience in your blog and refining your ideas along the way. So 
that takes a lot of work. I mean, that's a huge piece of the puzzle there. Just, just to highlight, you didn't say it, but yeah, you spent a lot of time and work doing all that ahead of time. Well, I did that, but, but even more importantly, I spent dec- decades figuring out the formula, you know, figuring out the simple path that I lay out in the book. And, and I actually wrote the book for my daughter because it's what I want to do. If you mentioned uh, very early in our conversation, my Google talk, and uh, one of the questions that Rachel, who's the woman who's interviewing me uh, at Google, asks in that is, she says, you know, you're, the advice that you give in your book is very specific. And most investing books uh, are not, they don't give very, you know, she says, oh, why don't other writers in investing, why aren't they, why don't they give specific advice? Something like that. I'm butchering her question. She asked it much better. And I thought about that and nobody had asked that before. And I said, well, you know, I can't, I can't get in the minds of those other writers, but I can tell you the reason my advice is so specific is because I'm writing it for a very specific person, my daughter. This is what I want her to do. And it is the advice I would give anybody else who asked. But but if I'm going to give advice to my daughter, it's not going to be generic go buy index funds. I'm going to tell her buy this index fund at this place and here's the reason. Uh, here are the reasons behind that. So, yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons in retrospect that it's resonated with a lot of people. Although that was, I wish I'd been clever enough to do that strategically, but <laughs> I was just serendipity. Yeah. So I'd like to talk about retirement a little bit and I'm going to differ from the script a little bit. Sorry, sorry, Doug, we have this outline here, but I'm going to go off it. At the UK Chautauqua, JL, you said something that I thought was pretty profound. And we might talk about Chautauquas a little bit later, but we were talking about work and you said work is close to the human soul, which I think is true. Uh, we all need we all need meaningful work. I can't imagine retiring and sitting on the couch and eating Cheetos and watching reruns all day. Honestly, I'd rather be dead than do something like that. That would just throw me into depression. So how do you what does retirement look like to you? And how do you reconcile that with what the internet retirement police might tell you? Hey, you're retired. You're not supposed to be working. You're not supposed to be writing this book. Why are you doing this? I realize I'm all over the place there, but maybe you can form the my thoughts into something more cohesive. You know, speaking of being all over the place, one of the things that popped into my, into my head while you were saying that, because I think you're right, is probably one of the things that makes solitary confinement so psychologically abusive is you're not sitting on a beach, but you are sitting with nothing to do. And that I'm not a psychologist, but evidently that is one of the most difficult things for a human being to deal with is having nothing to do. I'm not a fan of the acronym fire or more correctly. I am. I think it's a very cool acronym because fire is a cool word and fire, of course, stands for financial independence, retire early. But you will never find it in my writings. Uh, I, I use just the acronym FI. It's not nearly as cool as the word fire, but it takes off that retire early part. Because for me, it's never been about retiring. In fact, we talked about my, my guest post on Mr. Money Mustache way back in 2012, and that was the title of it, has never been about retirement 
because I liked my job. I liked my career. I enjoyed it. I didn't never had that concept in my head. In fact, I didn't hear that concept or come across it until after I started my blog. I had heard the concept of having FU money. And I found that in a book by James Clavell, Noble House, in the 70s. And there's a character in there. And her stated goal is to accumulate $10 million, and that will be her FU money. FU money meaning that she could do anything she wanted. So I guess the same thing as FI. But to me, it was just having enough money that I could step away from jobs when I wanted to and take many sabbaticals, which is how I spent my career because I loved working. I just didn't want to have to do it all the time. And I had a tendency, by the way, when I, when I was working, to be kind of a workaholic. I really threw myself into it. And that's just, I'm not saying that's a good way to be or a bad or a bad way to be. It's just kind of the way I am. But it's not a, a long-term way to be. You burn yourself out. And so I, I, it would have been horrible if I had never been able to step away and recharge my batteries, but that's what the FU money provided me. So for me, it's never been about retirement. And I think, as you mentioned, you know, you and Mr. Money Mustache, and and I think everybody I've ever met in this community, whether they have blogs or, or they don't, who has hit financial independence and who has left their traditional employment, I don't know a single one who hasn't gone on to do other things. And most often those other things throw off money, uh, even if they don't need the money and they're not intending to. And so I think that the retire early part, as you alluded to, confuses a lot of people outside the financial independent movement, makes them resistant to it because they look at people like you and for that extension i guess maybe not so much me because i'm an old guy but but they look at young people like you and 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 mr money mustache and they say well, these guys aren't retired they just quit one job and went on to do other kinds of work that's legitimate in in a sense but that's really not the point you know your point wasn't i'm assuming to accumulate this portfolio so you never have to work again it was just gives you more options as to how to work i've met people by the way who've, who've reached financial uh independence that they're at that number who said to me i love my job i don't want to quit my job do i have to quit my job i'm like no you don't have to quit you know the whole point of being financially independent is you can do whatever you want to do and if that means continuing to do what you're doing now that's wonderful it just gives you options. It gives you freedom. It's buying your freedom. So that's a long-winded answer as to why I don't use, well, I think the FIRE ac acronym is really cool. I think it also yeah, it just becomes kind of a quagmire with those last two letters. So I, I choose not to use it. And there you go. Problem solved. Sure. Yeah, I think it depends on your why and your purpose. I think of the activities I do throughout the day, I exercise so I have better health and can hopefully live longer with higher quality of life. And I write, but the primary purpose is because I enjoy it. You shouldn't avoid an activity just because it has a possible side effect of making you more money. I mean, if, if I'm running, for example, and I see a $100 bill on the ground, I'm going to pick it up. I'm not going to leave it there. Now, if I'm writing 
and someone gives me money for a little ad, which won't compromise my integrity, I'm going to take that money because I, I still enjoy money and hopefully I'll be able to do something good with it because I don't think I'll be able to spend it all, but it's nice to look forward to giving it away, which I know you have, JL, and we might talk about that a little bit later too. Well, you know, it is just on that point, a couple of quick things. I think, first of all, it, it, I like getting paid. Uh, maybe that's a, maybe that's a psychological flaw in me, but I, I've always liked getting paid. I think getting paid for what you do is, is kind of a, uh, an affirmation that it has value. And just in terms of efficiency, I like doing things that pay me, not only because it puts money in my pocket, and frankly, I don't need more, more money at this point, but there are people and organizations out there who do need money, and I'm able to to support some of those. And if I weren't getting paid for my work, then uh, then I wouldn't be able to do that. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of good reasons to continue to work and continue to get paid and certainly people far wealthier than us. I mean, you know, Warren Buffett, uh, uh, I, I, you know, I mean, they're billionaires who keep working and, and by the way, you, you know, those people in my mind don't just benefit people like Bill Gates does now with his charitable activities. But when you're, uh, when you're working like Elon Musk and, uh, uh, Amazon, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, uh, Bezos. Yeah, and you're creating businesses, you know, you're creating jobs and you're creating wealth for for a whole myriad of other people. So, yeah, I mean, staying actively engaged and working uh, benefits the people around you as much as it does you, in many cases more. Is there anything that you miss from the corporate days? I know you work in some capacity off and on, but yeah, those corporate days, more traditional work. Um, you know, I'm tempted to say like from the movie office space, I wouldn't say I'm missing it, <laughs> but, but there are, I mean, I, I, uh, I was in the magazine publishing business and if anybody has watched, uh, uh, Mad Men, which of course is about ad agency people, uh, that's a little glimpse into that life and, and, uh, uh, magazines were the media part of that. They're, they're of course, talking about ad agency. So, yeah, I mean, I, I spent a lot of my time entertaining clients. And so I had the opportunity to, to go to some pretty incredible restaurants and drink some pretty good wine and, and eat some pretty good meals and hang out with some pretty interesting people while I was doing it. So I kind of, I kind of missed that. By my last job, my last corporate job, I was working for a friend of mine. A guy who'd actually worked for me uh, earlier in my career, and we'd become pretty good friends. And I finally decided, for a variety of reasons, I wasn't—I was going to hang it up. And he was trying to talk me out of out of that. And we were driving to a to a client dinner, and uh, you know, we we're going to another great restaurant. He was a he was a real wine connoisseur. So whenever I entertained with Joe, I knew the wines were going to be exceptional. And and we're driving in the car and he turned to me and said, you know, he, he, he said, you might not realize it now, but you're going to miss this. And I said, Joe, I'm already missing it, <laughs> but that's just that part of it. So yeah, <laughs> there's some great, like I said earlier, I loved, I loved working. I didn't love it all the time. I didn't want to do it all the time, 
I loved being able to step away from it periodically, which I think made all the difference. But yeah, I think work is uh, is great. I, but you know, I when I was a a teenager, you know, my first paid job was was being a busboy, and I liked doing that. So you know, there's something very satisfying about work. Do you want to come over, Jail? I, I don't like doing the dishes or picking them up, and I have two messy children. We'd uh, stay for as long as you want. Everything in its time, Carl. Everything is, <laughs> that time has passed. Jill, I have a question. Uh, you brought up these mini retirements. I think that's interesting. You probably listened to our mutual friend Brandon interview Michael Kitsis, and they were talking about early retirement, and Michael Kitsis recommended the exact same thing that you did. In other words, he said he has these clients who work up, they save all this money, and then they stop working, and then they're bored. So his recommendation was to do what you did, to maybe take sabbaticals or mini retirements. And I think that's a better way to do it. I think about it, and I wish I would have done that. And the way work is structured now, I think it's easier than ever to do that. We don't work at a job for 40 years and and get our golden watch. We move around, and I don't think a gap in employment is the detriment it used to be. So, But the fact you did this a long time ago, I think, is pretty surprising. I'm not sure even now I would have had the confidence to do it, but you did decades ago, apparently. You know, um, it's interesting. I think you're right. I think it's easier to do it now than it has ever been before. Uh, Certainly taking sabbaticals is far more accepted than it was. One of the biggest challenges I had in doing this is figure out creative ways on my resume to fill these gaps. And, and uh, because it would not have been successful, it would not have been acceptable to just say, yeah, I decided I didn't want to work for five years. (laughs) And so but I think now, uh, you know, if you say you took a year or two off and did something interesting like travel or whatever, you're probably going to get a very positive response from the person interviewing you. But uh, in my day, in most cases, as I think back on the interviews I've had, it would have been the kiss of death. Um, although not always. There was, you know, the uh, one of the last jobs I had, I had quit a job in the spring. Uh, it just kind of run its course, and and um, my plan—I didn't have any plans uh, for another job. And and uh, uh, my wife and I were planning to to take the summer off and go drive around Canada, which is what we did. We wound up getting up to Hudson Bay, and it was kind of a cool trip. But uh, shortly after I quit that job, one of my one of my uh, business friends rang me up and he said, Hey, you know, I, I understand you just quit XYZ company. I, I just, uh, had ABC company reach out to me, uh, about a job and I, it's not one that I'm interested in, but I think you'd be perfect. You want me to pass your name on? I said, sure, you know, do that. And so I got a call from this nice HR lady at this, at this company. And, and she was telling me a little bit about it, and I said, you know, this really does sound like a great job, and I would very much be interested, but I'm going to be traveling until the fall. <laughs> so, you know, it's just not in the cards. And I figured that would be the kiss of death, but to my amazement, she said, well, will you call me when you get back? And I said, sure. And uh, I did, and and that job, of course, they had filled, but you know, companies always have new jobs opening up. So, 
I wound up joining them that November, I think. So, yeah. So I guess even towards the end of my career, it, it was becoming less of a liability and maybe even a positive. Switching gears just a little bit, you have excellent communication skills. Like <laughs> I said, you you did um, a fine job on, on the book, obviously, with all the sales. But I just listened to the audio book, which you read. And I yep. did a lot of research ahead of time. And you're concise, very clear, entertaining. What has contributed to these communication skills? Well, I, that's an interesting question. I, I think, uh, first of all, I, I'm an English major. Uh, so an English lit major. So I've always been interested in reading and fascinated by the way good writers put words together. So that's been that's been helpful. And then in my business career, I mean, I, I a lot of what I did was communicating with clients or with team members when I was in management. So I was doing a lot of presentations. Uh, I was doing a lot of written communications of letters, emails, presentations, that kind of thing. I never wrote anything like a book or short stories or stuff like that. I, I made a couple of stabs at fiction, but I, I never got very far because I never particularly liked uh, the way it was showing up on the page. So I think writing fiction is a lot more difficult than writing nonfiction. But, so I think I was pretty well suited to write a nonfiction book by the time I got to it because of all the nonfiction writing I'd done in my business career. So that would be my guess. I have thank a, you. That's, that's high praise. I appreciate it. I have a, I want to ask a follow-up question, but I have a confession for you, JL, that I haven't told you before. You used to have a little bit of fiction on your blog. It was the uranium, I forgot, 238 or, or, or whatever it was. And, uranium C. Yeah. And I read that and I thought it was pretty good, but I also did it and uh, granted I'm a little bit slow. I, I thought maybe you were an insane person and that was uh, like, uh, I'm like, should I trust this guy? Cause is he, got some kind of thing going on does he really believe this and i think i even asked you about it once in real life but i thought your fiction was good though and i'm sorry for thinking that you were personal that wasn't, that wasn't fiction <laughs> okay there <laughs> confirmed I, I only write nonfiction. <laughs> all right you want to start wrap, wrapping her down yeah i think uh we did have a lot more to ask you but in respect from your time and in respect to our all of our bladders i think we should uh Ask a couple of fun questions and then be done with it. Let's start with uh, an easy one. What the hell are you doing now, JL? I know you've got these books coming out in different countries. Uh, what else keeps you motivated? I know you live in that beautiful spot on Lake Michigan. What's What do you do? What are you working on? What are you looking forward to? Yeah, so we have for uh, not quite a year now, we, we do have this little uh, cottage on Lake Michigan, which... We are fundamentally, fundamentally, we're, we're nomads. But uh, last year, we were actually in your state in the spring, uh, which is where our daughter lives, and when COVID hit. And um, uh, so we had bought this cottage back in 2017 with the idea of renting it out on VRBO and using it a couple months out of the year and, and between our travels. Uh, but when COVID hit, you know, we, we sort of hold up here to hide out the plague, wait out the plague. 
and uh, it's been a great place to be. It is, it's beautiful being on the lake, um, but we're kind of getting, kind of getting itchy. And so we hope to, we've been both vaccinated now and we hope to get back out on the road uh, probably just come September. So I still fool around with the blog a little bit. I stay in contact with, with uh, my followers on Twitter and Facebook and uh, I guess I could make an almost announcement here. This is the first time I've said this, but uh, I'm toying with starting a second book. Whoa. And I have a potential editor lined up to work with. And in fact, I, I have a meeting with her later today and uh, to see uh, how we're going to go forward, if we're going to go forward. So... Uh, yeah. So, and if if I wind up doing that, that'll keep me that'll keep me busy for a while. Wow, that's incredible! Congratulations. Well, and this is the first time I've said anything publicly about it. Nice. You heard it here first. We got the scoop. Yeah, Amazing. we better put this out. Um, you, you might not know this, but Doug and I are both musicians. You see Doug's guitar back there. I play the piano, and we're actually considering writing a musical, "The Simple Path to Wealth," the musical, and. <laughs> And one of us is going to play young JL. We'll get, uh, yeah, who would you pick? Like, uh, and if this is too uncomfortable for you, all of the above, none of the above. Either or, one of you are good looking enough to play. Really? Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, he has abs, so I don't know if that comes into play or not. But if you want nope. a guy with abs, then Carl. Don't we all? <laughs> D- Doug has already wrote index funds I think that's going to be where is that in the musical I think it's somewhere in the middle I, f- I forget so, how we open are you serious about doing this musical of course we are is it April 1st <laughs> <laughs> we might write a song though Doug and I have talked about I don't think Doug's on board with it but I've tried to persuade Doug that we should do something with music and uh I don't want to sing, Doug. I don't know how you feel about singing, but maybe your wife or Mindy sang. Mindy sang the uh, the thing for jail when we were promoting Simple Path to Wealth. But yeah, maybe we will do something. You heard it here first. Index Fund, <laughs> the musical. We'll figure it out. <laughs> All right. Any other last? One quick one. So, so jail. you and I both grew up in Chicagoland. Are you a deep dish guy or a thin crust guy? Oh, I, I'm a thin crust guy. Uh, although deep deep dish is uh, Chicago's home of the deep dish pizza, and I, I actually am old enough to remember at least I I think this is true when they first came out. I'm trying to think of the name of the pizzeria that came out with them, and of course nobody had ever experienced them before, and that was the greatest thing since sliced bread. But when I lived in Chicago, I was in Rogers Park, and there was a pizzeria near my house, JB's. JB's free Coke with every pizza. And they delivered, so they had thin crust. Was it Coke, the the drink, or Coke, the other substance? I know times were a little <laughs> bit different back then. <laughs> well, you know, one time they were one and the same. There was Coke, there was Coke in the Coke, uh, but no, this was Coca Cola, Coca Cola product. Okay, all right. So you're you're deep dish then. I'm a deep dish guy, Jail. I'm kind of kind of feel a little let down now, but it's okay. I'm sure. I'll... Yeah, when you were when you were putting that question out, I figured it was a trick question. <laughs> The truth is the truth, Carl. What can I say? If you would have said deep dish, I would have gone the other way just to harass you. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This has been uh, fantastic. It's a pleasure to talk to you, JL. Doug, Carl, thank you. It's been a pleasure to be hanging out with you. Yeah, thank you so much. I hope our paths cross in real life now that COVID is just about done. Fingers crossed. Yeah. So thank you very much.
Well, let's do it and do it again. Really appreciate your time today. My pleasure entirely. As as they said, the Bob said in the office space, all the pleasures on this side of the table. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the show. That was the Mile High Five podcast, and I'm Doug Cunnington, the Balder host, and Carl Jensen is the cool, sexy one. If you dig the show, please do three things for us. Number one, tell a friend, a family member, an enemy about the show. We really don't care who you tell. Maybe forward them a specific show that you know that they will like. It's the single most helpful thing that you can do to spread the word. It's like giving us a virtual high five. And uh, actually, we don't give high fives in, in person. So the virtual kind's pretty good. And more importantly, your friend or family member or even your enemy will appreciate the fact that you were thinking of them. Number two, make sure you're following or subscribed on your podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, YouTube, whatever you're using. And that way you won't miss a show. And number three, please leave us a rating and review. We read them on the show occasionally, and you might hear yours out there on an upcoming episode. Quick disclaimer, this show is not financial or legal advice. I'd actually be surprised if it sounded like it. It's really just for entertainment, and that's at least what we're hoping for. But seriously, get advice from professionals. Carl and I are just two guys with microphones that sit in my basement and talk. So we'll catch y'all next week. Oh,